0: Hello, and welcome to the River of Life podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to check out River of Life live this Sunday at 1030 a.m. in Crawfordville. Visit riveroflifefl.com for service times and directions. That's riveroflifefl.com. Now let's join special guest Derek Gray as he teaches from the Word of God.
1: If you're visiting with us today and you don't know me, I'm not Henry Jones. Again, Henry always says before I come up here, make sure they know you're not me. So I guess he thinks if I stink it up, he wants you to come back next week and hear some real preaching. So um, I'll try not to do that. Uh, The title of my message today is Slaying the Dragon. Slaying the Dragon. And before I get started, I want you, if you will, for just a few minutes to... Uh, indulge me in a, in a little bit of, of role play. I want you, if you will, to imagine this morning uh, or picture yourself in a courtroom. So you don't have to close your eyes or anything like that, but just, just picture yourself in a courtroom. And in this courtroom, you're not just a spectator, you're sitting in the, the witness chair. And you have been called into that courtroom to give testimony on your own behalf. Now, I, because this is my story, I get to be the prosecuting attorney. And my job on this day is to convict you of being a Christian. My job is to convince a jury, so over here is a jury, and my job is to convince this jury beyond a reasonable doubt that you are a real, true, honest believer in Jesus Christ. Now think about that for just a second. How am I going to do that? How am I going to convince somebody, a jury, that you're a Christian? Well, you may say, well, it's pretty obvious, Derek. Just just ask me. So let's start with the obvious question. Are you a Christian? Now, I've watched enough Law and Order episodes to know that a good lawyer never asks a question that they don't already know the answer to. So I'm pretty sure that you're going to say yes after all by the way i read the other day one of the latest surveys of americans when they were asked are you a question christian 83 percent of america said yes i'm a christian now when i hear numbers like that i'm always reminded of a quote by abraham lincoln i don't know if you've ever heard this abraham lincoln posed a question one time and he said how many legs does a dog have if you call its tail a leg And the answer is four, because just calling a tail a leg don't make it a leg, right? And let me tell you, 83% of Americans calling themselves Christians, that don't make anybody a Christian. So let's say that you answer yes to that question. Yes, I'm a Christian. See, the fact is, just saying you're a Christian, that's no proof. We'd all agree with that. That's not going to convince a jury that you're a Christian. So I need... I need to dig a little bit deeper. So I ask you a second question, and it's this. I say, well, what do you mean by that? I- explain for the jury what you mean by saying you're a Christian. And you say, well, that means I've been born again. I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. I've been redeemed. I'm a, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. My sins are forgiven. I'm a, I'm a Christ follower. Now, that sounds good, and we're getting a little bit closer, but can I be honest with you? Those are just words. How, how do I know you hadn't been hanging out down there at that dome for so long that you just picked up the lingo? How do I know that you're just not one of those kids that your parents have drugged you to church every week from the day you were born, and over time you just picked up the terminology? Listen, I know people that love football and they, they can, they know the terminology, they know the lingo, they can spout it out, but they've never played the game. They're not football players. You see, just knowing the lingo, knowing the terminology, that's not enough. Any, anybody can do that. You see, I've got to, how to, remember, my job is to convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that you're a Christian. I need to give them evidence. I need real hard evidence that you're a Christian, not just not just words. And then I remember something. Isn't there a scripture somewhere in the Bible that says something like this? Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those that belong to Christ, those that are really Christians have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Hey, how about that? Have you done that? So I ask a third question. Can you give me examples in your life where being a Christian has made a real difference in how you have crucified your old ways, your old habits, your old behaviors, your your old attitudes? Can you give me those evidence? Give me that evidence. Are you a Christian? Can you show me the evidence? You see, I bring that up because that's exactly what our passage today in Galatians five, sixteen through 25 is all about. Paul wants us to see this is what a Christian looks like. He's going to tell us. And it's more than just saying you're a Christian. It's more than just knowing the lingo. Paul assumes that when you became a Christian, something so profound happened down deep inside of you that it literally changed who you are. That something so profound happened that it changed the way you think. It changed your attitudes. It changed your habits. It changed your behaviors. Things are just completely different. You see, Paul assumes that when you become a Christian, your life will produce real evidence that you're a believer in Jesus Christ. He just he just makes that assumption and today he's going to give us that picture. Now we're going to read about 9 verses. I want to start with the first one, which is Galatians 5:16. It says this. This is Paul writing and he says, "I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh." Now, Paul's going to talk in these next few verses a lot about the Spirit and a lot about the flesh. So, I want to make sure we understand the definition of flesh that Paul's talking about. Okay, when he says, when he, talk, when he talks about the flesh, I want to make sure we understand the definition. First of all, when Paul's talking about the flesh here, he's not talking about your skin and bones, he's not talking about your, your teeth or your fingernails or your hair or any of that part of your body. When Paul's talking about the flesh, he's talking about the inner man. The inner woman. We could refer to it as the eye. Uh, Psychologists would call it the ego. The Bible refers to it as the heart. Now, I'm going to call it this morning, I'm going to call it the eye. Okay? And you'll see why here in just a second. So it's not the skin and bones. It's what's inside. It's the eye on the inside. Now, inside of every human being is an eye, an ego. And this I has an emptiness inside that it wants to feel. It has longings and desires that need to be satisfied. Now, some of these longings and desires that are produced by this I on the inside, there's nothing wrong with them. Every human being wants love. We want to be content. We want to have peace. We want to be fulfilled. By the way, there's nothing wrong with those desires. Those are God-given desires. I don't think there's anything wrong with them. But can I tell you the eye also has desires that are not God-given. It wants power. It wants to have its own way. It wants reputation. It wants to be praised by other people. But no matter what the desire is, the flesh or the eye, it only knows one way to fill that emptiness... And that's through its own power and its own resources. So it tries to do that with a number of ways. For example, it might try to fill that emptiness with sex and pornography. It might try to fill that emptiness with alcohol and drugs. It, it might try to fill that emptiness by making money. It, it tries to fill the emptiness maybe with a career. Maybe it tries to do it with more education. Maybe it even tries to do it with family. But it tries all of these different ways to fulfill this emptiness. Now, by the way, the Bible tells us that if you'll just give your life to God, He'll fill all those needs. He'll fill all that. But God don't make deals with people. He's going to do it His way. He says, put your faith in me, rely on my grace and my mercy, and at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. I'll fulfill everything you've ever dreamed of or wanted, but we're going to do it my way. But can I tell you, the eye or the flesh hates that idea. It hates that idea. Romans 8, 7 says this, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law or God's authority. You see, the flesh never wants to give up control. It says, I'll do it and I'll do it my way. Okay? It is it is absolutely unsubmissive. So it's not surprising then, that in our next verse, verse 17, Paul tells us that there's a war going on between the flesh and the Spirit. Let's read that, verse 17. It says, For the flesh lust against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. By the way, Paul is talking about a Christian there. He's not talking about an unbeliever. He's talking about a Christian. By the way, how do I know that? Because only Christians have the Spirit of God. Unbelievers don't have the Spirit of God. There's no war going on in unbelievers. They just have flesh. Only Christians have spirit. So, So he says, this is the picture of a Christian. See, a Christian, by the way, is not a person who doesn't experience any bad desires. A Christian is a person who is at war with those desires by the power of the spirit. You see, we need to understand that. Conflict in your soul is not all bad. In fact, can I tell you there's something far worse than a war inside of you between flesh and spirit, and that is no war at all. Because if there's no war going inside of you, you know what that tells me? It tells me one. Number one, the spirit is in, I mean, the flesh is in complete control, and the spirit is not there at all. The Spirit is not there at all. So one of the signs of whether you are indwelt by the Spirit, one of the evidences that you are a Christian, is not that you don't have any bad desires, but you're at war with the ones you have. In fact, look at verse 16 again. Paul says, "...walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh." You see, notice the main point in those two verses is not the conflict... The main point is the victory of the Spirit. Paul says, walk in the Spirit and you will defeat the flesh. End of story. Okay, So again, Paul's not saying that there won't be a war, but he's saying that the winner of the war will be the Spirit of God. Now, I want you to notice what Paul does next. Okay, Paul is going to do something. He's up here and he's talking about this war between flesh and the Spirit. And we're, we're looking at that and we're saying, man, I know what you're talking about, Paul. I kind of I get what you're saying. And now Paul is going to turn around and he's going to do something very, very practical. And he is going to give us a list. In fact, he's going to give us two lists. He's going to give us a list of vices, which are bad things to be avoided. And he's going li- to give us a list of virtues, which are good things to be encouraged Now, the first thing he's going to do, he's going to give us a list of emotions, attitudes, and actions that are produced by the flesh. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. And Paul says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I told you before, and I'm going to tell you again, Paul says, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, watch what he does. In contrast, he turns right around in verses 22 and 23, and he gives us a list of emotions, attitudes, and actions that are produced by the Spirit. Let's read that. 22 to 23 says, "...but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law." Now, here's my question. Why would he do that? Why, why would Paul get so very practical and actually give us these lists of things that are produced by the flesh and things that are produced by the Spirit. Now, I can come up with a lot of reasons why he would do that. But I think one of the reasons is this. You know, I asked earlier, what is the evidence that you belong to Christ? You know, I hear people say from time to time that the Bible's hard to understand. And, you know, and to be honest with you, that can sometimes be true. Did you know even the apostle Peter said that some of the things Paul wrote was hard to understand? Did you know that? Even Peter said, man, some of that stuff Paul wrote, I, it's hard to understand. But can I tell you, these lists, they're not hard to understand at all, are they? How can you get any plainer? It just says it right here. These are things produced by the flesh. These are things produced by the Holy Spirit. You see, I believe Paul assumes that these lists will tell you who you are. These lists will tell you who you are. How do I? By the way, why do I think that? Look at the next verse, Galatians 5.24. I want you to watch what he says immediately. He says this, "...and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires." Paul says, these are things produced by the flesh. These are things produced by the Spirit. And oh yeah, by the way, if you belong to Christ you've crucified those things that the the flesh produces. You've crucified them. You've nailed them down. They have no power over you anymore. They have no control in your life anymore. You see, I said this earlier. Paul assumes that when you become a Christian, something profound happens deep down inside of you. In fact, Paul assumes that when you become a Christian, a powerful battle has been fought and won deep down in your soul. I like analogies. I like examples. It helps me remember things. It helps me clear... Th- you know, Sometimes it helps me understand. So let me give you an analogy this morning. I want you, for just a minute, to picture your flesh, that I, that ego, that inner man or inner woman, that, that, that ego that won't submit to God, that hates the idea of, of, of having to give up control over to God. That that ego or that flesh that says, I'll do it myself and I'll do it my way. I want you to picture that I as a dragon living deep down in some deep cave or dark cave of your soul. Okay? I want you to just picture that for just a second. Then one day you hear the gospel. And in the gospel Jesus Christ comes to you and he says, I want to make you mine. I want to make you mine and I'm going to come in and I'm going to slay that dragon and I'm going to take control. But if I do this, he says, this is going to mean a complete new life for you. It's going to mean that you have to think new, that you have to act new, that you have to behave new. I'm going to change your feelings. I'm going to change your desires. I'm going to change everything you were. I'm going to change it to be like me. Will you accept that? Will you yield to my possession? And you look at him and you say, but that dragon, that's me. <laughs> right? That's, that's me. If you kill that dragon, I'll die. And he says, that's exactly right. But I'll create a new I. I'll create a new you. And I'll put my mind and my heart and my spirit in place of that old dragon. And you will become like me. You'll begin to think like me, and talk like me, and walk like me, and be like me. And you ask him, what do I have to do? And he says, just trust me. And overcome by his beauty and by his power, you bow down and you give your life to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, when you, at some point, hold on, let me find where I'm at right here. You bow down, you give your life to him. As you rise, you look to him, and he's got a hammer and nails in his hand. And he puts them, gives them to you, and he says, now go in there and slay the dragon. And you say to him, but I can't do that. Not without you. And he said, exactly right. He said, understand from now on, any command I give you is never a command for you to do it yourself. In fact, he says, without me, you can do nothing. I'll always be there with you. And so you and Jesus enter that cave together. And a horrible battle ensues. But as you fight, you feel his hands on yours helping you. And at last, at long last, that dragon lies limp. You see, folks, if I could give you an analogy of the new birth, that's what it is. That's what it means to be born again. That's what it means to become a Christian. You see, when you become a Christian, the dragon of the flesh is dealt a death blow. Our old self is crucified and stripped of its power. We are now indwelt by the Spirit of God. Christ has taken possession of our soul. Uh, Paul says this in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. See, Paul's not saying my flesh was hung up on a cross. He's saying that I, that ego, that inner man, it's been crucified. It's no longer I who live. Now Christ lives in me. Now you turn to Jesus and you ask him, you say, Is it dead? And he says, no, child, it's not dead yet, but it's been dealt a death blow, and its death is absolutely certain. It's hang- it, you, you have nailed it to a cross. You have crucified it, and it's going to die slowly. And as it's bleeding to death day by day, and as it's dying inside of you every day, it can still do you harm. It can still try to tempt you. I was telling the class, my Sunday school class this morning, I love this analogy of crucifying the flesh because when you crucify someone, they don't die immediately, do they? It takes time. You see, when you're on a cross and you're dying, your death is sure. You're going to die, but it takes time. When you crucify the flesh, it's going to die, but it takes time. But see, on that cross, you can't just come off a cross and do anything you want. The same thing with the flesh. It can't just come off the cross and do whatever it wants. It no longer has any more power in your life. It has no more control over you. I love that analogy of the crucifixion. So he tells us, no, no, child, it's not dead yet, but it's dying. And it'll still try to tempt you sometimes with those longings and desires. Sometimes in its death throes. It might even loosen those nails a little bit, but you just walk back in there and you hammer it back in because you remember you are free. You belong to me. That flesh has no control over you any longer. You see, folks, that's the Christian life. You see, when you're born again, the decisive battle has been fought and won. Something profound happens inside of you. The dragon is crucified. Its doom is sure. The spirit is now in control. But until it dies completely, it's going to continue to struggle. It's going to continue to try and do us harm. So therefore, it must be fought daily. You see, I don't understand this idea in America today that somehow you come down and you get saved and then you walk away and say, you know what, I'll get to that flesh eventually. One day I'll deal with that stuff. That's not the picture that the Bible gives whatsoever. That's not the the picture of the Bible. The Christian life isn't about slaying the dragon, then walking out of the the building and letting the dragon run your life. The Christian life isn't about being born again and then going back to doing your own thing. It isn't about being set free, then going back and doing the same things you did when you were in slavery. You may say to me, well, Derek, I, I walked down an aisle... And I, and I pray to prayer. That's great. But let me ask you this. Is Jesus Christ taking possession of your soul? That's the question. Has the dragon of the flesh been dealt a death blow in your life? Is the Spirit of God in control of your life? That's the question. Not whether you walk down an aisle and pray to prayer. Is Jesus Christ in control? Is the Spirit taking possession of you? Are you living the Christian life? Listen, by the way, you you, you want to answer that? Paul says, guys, it's pretty clear. Look look at that verses again, verses 19 through 21. Paul says, now the works of the flesh are evident. He means, guys, this is absolutely easy. This is clear. The works of the flesh are evident, which are. And he goes on to say, I told you beforehand, I'll tell you again, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Can I be very clear with you guys this morning? If you are committing adultery, you are not going to heaven. If you are having sex outside of marriage, that is your practice. You are not going to heaven. If you are getting drunk and high and partying, you're not going to heaven. Are your relationships full of strife and dissensions? If you're always angry if you cheat people in your daily life, if there's people that you hate and you will not forgive, you're not going to heaven. Now you say, Derek, you can't say that. I didn't. He did. That's what Paul said. I didn't say that. Listen, don't get me wrong. We all make mistakes. That's not what I'm talking about. Look at what Paul says. Those who practice such things... In other words, Paul is saying, this is who you were. You practiced those things. You were, you were, you were doing those things. And then one day, you made a profession of faith in Christ. But days have gone by, weeks have gone by, months have gone by, and you're still doing those things. Don't deceive yourself. That's what he's saying. Don't, don't be deceived. Though you did those things before, and you're still doing them now, and there's no desire, inside of you to change. Folks, I'm going to be honest with you. You didn't get saved. You didn't get saved. The Spirit, because when the Spirit of God comes in, He changes you. He crucifies that flesh. You listen, you may not to, know how to do everything, but I can be, I can tell you, you've got a desire to do it. You have immediately have got a desire. I, I, Scooter and I were talking today. I'll never forget a story he told me about when he got saved and, and he went home that night and he woke up the next day and he was... Uh, looked out his window and there was a, a a place where people gathered together at a bonfire or some kind of fire and they were drinking and smoking and doing all those things and he said the next day he looked out that window and the desire to do those things were gone gone now he didn't know he didn't know anything about the bible he didn't know how to walk the christian life he didn't know how to be a christian but i can tell you the desires of the flesh were crucified and dead and gone Now, is it going to take time? Absolutely, to mature and to grow in Christ. But if you practice those things beforehand and you continue to do them, Paul says, don't be deceived. You are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. You see, the Christian, when you become a Christian, that second you are immediately indwelt by the Spirit of God. Romans 8 9 says this, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, and anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. You see, someone who is indwelt by the Spirit will not only stop doing the works of the flesh, they're going to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Now, as a Christian, when we become a Christian, Paul says, you have crucified the flesh. You have an immediate desire to change. Now, Paul says this, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, I always get asked this question, and I've asked myself this question. How do I walk in the Spirit? How do I pract- what does it mean to walk in the Spirit, and how do I practically walk in the Spirit? Um, I want to give you uh, two things. Number one, to walk in the Spirit, first and foremost, you have to be saved. Okay? First and foremost, you have to be saved. If you made a, I'll say it one more time, if you made a profession of faith in Christ years ago or days ago, and there's no desire in you to change, there's no desire in you to do anything different, i got to be honest with you, you didn't get saved. Because when the Spirit of God comes in you, He immediately changes your desires. Immediately. Again, you got to learn to walk it out. You're still going to make mistakes, but I'm telling you, He will immediately change your desires. You want to do the right thing. You want to put those those works of the flesh to death. You may not be always successful, but your desires will change. Now, what about Christians? What about if you're a Christian here today, and you've been experiencing that conflict that Paul talked about in verse 17? The Spirit, you're wanting to do these things, but sometimes you get pulled back over to here and you got this conflict going back and forth. Paul says, walk in the Spirit and you won't do that anymore. Walk in the Spirit and you'll put to death those works of the flesh. So, walking in the Spirit is pretty important. How do we do that? I want to give you two images or phrases that shed light on it in today's passage. The first is in Galatians 5.18. You probably thought I skipped that, but I want to come to, back to it. Paul says this, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. I want to highlight that word, led. If you are led by the Spirit. Notice Paul didn't say, if you follow the Spirit. He says, if you're led by the Spirit. You see, what Paul is doing is he's emphasizing the Spirit's work, not yours. Okay? let me Let me give you this little analogy here. The Spirit is not a leader like a pace car in the Daytona 500. The Spirit is a leader like a locomotive on a train. Let me give you a i I've seen people my whole and I used to do this. It's like the early part of my Christian life, I knew I needed to be led by the Spirit. So it seemed like every day I got up and I was like, okay, Spirit, what, what, do, you, what do you want me to do? If the Spirit goes right, I need to go right. And if He goes left, I need to go left. Can I tell you, that was exhausting. That was exhausting. See, I was like that pace car. I, I was trying to watch the Spirit. And if the Spirit fit, sped up, I sped up. And if the Spirit slowed down, I slowed down. But what I didn't realize is I was doing it under my own power. I was trying to go where He went and keep up. See, that's not the way it is. The Spirit is a leader like a locomotive on a train. Can I tell you, the car's on a train, Don't worry about whether they go or stop, they just stay hooked up to the locomotive. Boy, that set—that was freeing. You mean, I don't have to be doing that all the time? I can just stay hooked up to Him? Yes. Let the Spirit lead you. So walk by the Spirit means stay hooked up to that divine source of power and go wherever He leads. Now, there's a second image, again, which, which kind of tells us that we're looking the right way, and that's in Galatians 5.22. Paul says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and on and on. Notice again, Paul is emphasizing the Spirit's work. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not your fruit. He produces the fruit, not you. It's the, old, uh, the analogy in, in John 15. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are what? The branches. What's the branch's job? You just stay hanging on to that vine for dear life. That's your job every day. Don't worry about the fruit. He he, he he The Holy Spirit flows through the vine through you. He produces the fruit. You just stay attached to the vine. You just stay attached to the locomotive. That's your, that's your job. So what do we do? What does that mean every day? What, what can I practically do to stay attached to that locomotive of the Spirit? I want to give you one scripture, and this is Galatians 3.5. Paul says this, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Let me read that again, Galatians 3, 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by working or does he do it by hearing of faith? You see, what Paul is doing is he's reminding the Galatians, how did you get saved? How did you receive the Spirit for the very first time? Did you get it by working for it? Or did you get it by hearing the Gospel, hearing the Word of God, and believing it? Which one is it? Obviously, we got the Spirit. We were made alive by the Spirit by hearing the Word of God and believing it. Now look at Galatians 5.25. Paul says, If we live in the Spirit, then let us walk in the Spirit. You see, what Paul's saying is this. If we were made alive by the Spirit, by hearing the Word of God and believing it, then let's walk in the Spirit the same way. In other words, just hear the Word of God and believe it. How do I stay attached to the locomotive? How do I stay attached as a branch to the vine? Man, I get up every day. I get in my Word. I read that Word. I meditate on that Word. And I trust the promises of God. And I make sure that my soul is content in Him. That's it. That's it. You do that. Trust me. You do that. And I promise you, you'll be led by the Spirit. George Mueller um, was a Christian evangelist in the 1800s. He lived from uh, 1805 to 1898. And he was the director of the Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England. In his lifetime, he died when he was 93 years old. In his lifetime, there was no welfare system. There was no, uh, if you were poor, you just stayed poor. If you were dirt poor, you begged, you did anything you could. Um, uh, that was the, that, This was the era of debtor's prisons and things like that. It was, a, it was a pretty bad time. So he started an orphanage. And in his lifetime, he housed over 10,000 orphans, orphans in his orphanage. And if that wasn't enough, he wanted to educate poor children. So he started 117 schools in England and he ended up educating over 120,000 children in his lifetime. Now, can you imagine like that? A man gets up every day. Can you imagine? You might want to be led by the Spirit. Can you imagine the decisions, how busy you're going to be, the decisions that have to be made? I want you to read what he wrote in his autobiography. He said this, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to make sure that my soul was content in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about every day before I walked out the door was not how much I might serve the Lord, or how I even might glorify the Lord, but how to get my soul into a contented state and how my inner man might be nourished. And what is food for the inner man? The Word of God. You see, George Mueller learned the secret of walking by the Spirit. He says, I get up every day and I open that Bible and I read and meditate on the precious promises of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I make sure in that way that I'm hooked to the locomotive, and then I walk out the door and I let the Spirit lead. Can I tell you, that's way better than trying to follow the pace car. It's way less exhausting than trying to find the, 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 the pace car, which is the way it's going to go. You see, what do we have to do as Christians? Just hear Him. Just believe Him. Just trust Him. Just rest in Him. You see, that is what keeps us connected to the locomotive of the Spirit. That's what keeps us connected and allows the locomotive of that Spirit to to crucify the flesh within us and produce the fruit of the Spirit in us. I'm convinced, because I've seen this in my life, there's almost a, a ratio of flesh and Word. And I don't know if this is the right way to put it, but I'll try. I notice this. The less time I spend in the Word, it seems like the more the flesh rises up in me. The The less time I spend in the Word, the more the flesh. The more time I spend in the Word, the flesh goes down. There's almost like a ratio. Listen, if you're struggling the day with the flesh, get in your Word. I don't know other no other way to tell you. Get in your Word. It's By the way, guys, I'm glad you're here. I, I'm glad if you come to a Sunday school class, that's great. But nothing takes the place of you getting in your Word, you and the Holy Spirit, every day, reading and meditating on that Word and letting the, the, the Holy Spirit work that Word into you and through you and change you. That's what cleans us. Jesus told His disciples, you're clean by the Word that I spoke to you. We're cleaned by the washing of the Word. You don't do that... I hope you don't bathe once a week. I hope. Right? I hope you bathe pretty much every day. Listen, we need to be cleaned every day. We need to wash every day. We need to get in His Word every day. That's how the Spirit cleans us. That's how the Spirit changes us. You do that, trust me, you'll stay connected to the locomotive of the Spirit. And it's up to Him to pull the train. Jesus said it this way, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. But without me, you can do
0: nothing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. Thank you again for listening to River of Life Podcast. If this message has touched you today, or if you need somebody to pray with you, please let us know you can call us at 850-926-1200 or send an email at info at riveroflifefl.com. We also encourage you to check out River of Life live this Sunday at 1030 a.m. in Crawfordville. Visit riveroflifefl.com for more information and directions.